Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the 107 Podcast with myself, Jacob, and my co-host, Ash. Uh, well, this week he's going to be known as Anish because we also have a different Ash with us this week. Uh, we have Ash Buckman with us, who is a performance coach coach at Hightech GP. So, Ash, if you could introduce yourself for whomever's listening and let us know who you are. For sure. So, yeah, um, I am Ash. I, I'm currently working at Hightech GP. Um as one of the performance coaches in and around the team. But my main role as a performance coach is more sort of the race support side. So I'm a bit more bit more hands-on than maybe some of the other coach that works at high tech. Um, and yeah, I've been working with some of the F2 guys. I've been working down with GB3 and F4 guys. So I've kind of got my hands dipped in a bit of everywhere at the moment with um, all, all things performance at high tech, I suppose the best way of saying it. Nice. Awesome. And uh, so how how on earth did you get into the industry as a first anyway? Like what was it because you had a passion behind the sport itself or is it just through chance or friend of a friend or? Um, I mean, I was at university studying sports science and I've always loved motorsport and just kind of as soon as I realized there was an opportunity for me to do what I was hoping to do as a career in a broad aspect sort of specifically into motorsport i was like yeah this is this is where we're gonna go now this is all all attention going down this route um and then yeah sort of when i when i was at university i was reaching out to coaches um who were already in the industry and luckily one coach um tom clark who works for best of an uh was a graduate from the uni i was studying at so instantly i had something to build a connection on and then kind of from there i just kind of kept chatting to him getting as much advice and then that kind of turned into some small projects and eventually that just kind of grew into this full-time role that I now have at high tech. So yeah, kind of just that sort of, that was sort of the path I had coming through really. Awesome. I guess like off the back of that as well, I'm, as far as I'm aware, obviously a lot of drivers have uh, networks, obviously of other drivers and stuff like that. And so from, from what you're saying, I'm assuming that you have a bit of a network of other people who do exactly the same thing as as you do as well yeah i mean as soon as you're as soon as you're thrown into the world sort of you because you don't really have a direct impact on the cars yeah it's quite nice because you can almost share information being performance coaches yeah obviously if you're if you're an engineer at one team you're not gonna go and start telling about the other engineer at another team everything you're doing because i mean from that side of things that's pointless so the one benefit we have as performance coaches is we've kind of got this nice little community within paddocks that you can kind of just share and just like throw ideas, chat to each other, bounce off one another and kind of get support from each other, which is really nice because obviously motorsport is such a, co- a cutthroat industry in terms, especially the higher up you get. So to be part of a little bit that's still kind of quite friendly and quite pally is actually quite sound. So that's quite cool. Yeah, that's really, really nice actually. Yeah. Um, can you talk? A little bit more about like maybe the mental side of performance in that um, you see it now, like you're in a car, you can't lose concentration for a second. They've got a million things to talk about. How do you train and mentally prepare someone alongside the physical aspect as well? Um, it's a tough one, to be honest, because every driver's personality is different. And I mean, you can see that even just like when you're watching an F1 coverage over a weekend, you can see how different drivers interact. So ultimately their sort of trait personality their their personality they have within themselves from day to day is going to come through in terms of what they're doing 
Um, so all we can kind of do as performance coaches is, I suppose, manage that state specific personality they have, which will be in the car, build up to race or session and then post session, because obviously, although we always look at us from a performance side of terms, being in the car, we've also got to see if we can help them deal with that pressure because that then will translate across onto sort of post-session interviews and stuff like that. So we kind of yeah. have a little bit of an influence of that. So that's kind of covering the whole thing there. But it's kind of more, there's nothing I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's very clinical. It's very laid back. It's more just a case of, okay, how can we, how can we transfer what we know of their personality and adapt this situation to help them pull through if it's going badly or thrive if it's something that we need to capitalize on. So I wouldn't say there's anything specific we do, but obviously, you, I mean, you're working with the guy almost as much as you see your family. Yeah. So you have a pretty good understanding of what makes this guy tick or how they respond in certain situations. So it's kind of, as a performance coach, our job is to minimalize anything that's going to be potentially stressful or detrimental to their performance from a mental capacity, but also then try and filter in aspects that we think can help improve that to a perspective of confidence um, and things like that. But then also obviously as well, you've got the mental preparation in terms of like reaction times and things like that, which we kind of can control a bit more. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you see all the videos uh, online of the ball catching exercises um, and we use, I've got um, a set of reaction lights that we use pre-session Yep. Um, and just looking at reaction times, really trying to wake up that uh, neural system to get the driver really psyched up and sort of alert, ready to get in the car. Nice. And maybe just, just to follow on from that, like you said, we see like the reaction lights and, and the tennis ball exercise I've seen Pierre Gasly do. Is there any exercise that doesn't get shown that's quite important? You know, I've seen on your Instagram, you do like a lot of core work. There's always mention of like the huge amount of pressure that they put on the brakes, um, but that's not necessarily shown because it's not as kind of glamorous, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely this, I wouldn't say it's a trend, but you definitely, I mean, it's, it's common across all sort of, all sport of, you see, I mean, I like to call them Twitter coaches because they're the guys <laughs> who post videos yeah. because they want it to look as amazing as possible in the hopes that they get likes, retweets, whatever, which is great. I respect that. But fundamentally, everything we do as performance coaches is performance driven. So sometimes even just some of the real basic if you want to call them boring exercises are probably the ones that just don't get the recognition they need. And I mean, I'm, I'm not speaking from my personal experience. I've never seen a video or maybe only a couple of times have I seen a video of an F1, F2, F3, whatever, ELMS or a IndyCar driver actually just doing a bench press. Right. Like you, you're only going to see them doing all the exercises that are really good. So instantly as motorsport fans and i'll speak to myself initially before i got into the role about this is all you see is these fancy exercises so that's that's where our perception of motorsport training comes from it's it's sitting on a bosu ball it's doing all these ball catches but fundamentally these guys just need to be super strong and have a massive aerobic capacity to deal with the demands of the sport so yeah just simple stuff lift heavy get out on a bike go for a run those sort of things i feel like often get undermined a bit by these fancy exercises because they don't look as fancy on on social media 
they they definitely i think they get underappreciated like as well i think one of the things that i picked up during the season was um nico hulkenberg ran a 10k in magaluf like months ago and his time was 3550 which is just insane like i i struggled to do a 5k in that time let alone <laughs> 10 um and so which i personally i think that's a ridiculous time that's really impressive but to you does that sound really impressive or is that sort of what you'd expect of the people that you would train <laughs> at that level like is that is that just from the outside looking in or is that you know because i guess that something f- as simple as like a 5k 10k time is something you can easily compare to a normal person yeah i mean without making it sound less of an achievement because obviously anyone i feel like most oh, of no. the average population would love to run a 35 minute 10k but when you put into perspective that at the end of the day their job is to be physically fit and to do the best they can in their car if they're doing that on a sunday or let's say a friday to sunday the rest of their working week they are working to help achieve the best in their job so realistically as performance coaches as drivers as people networking with these drivers if they're not doing these sort of things outside of racing you'd argue actually they're not really doing their job Without making, without making a thirty-five minute, ten <laughs> yeah. um, k sound like it's a nothing, but realistically, their their job is they they should be working to achieve the best out of what they do. And a thirty-five minute ten k, I mean, it's a cracking time. I wish I could do it, but yeah. <laughs> you you should be expecting it of guys who are performing at this level, and then on a Sunday have to deal with racing for ninety minutes with an average heart rate of probably one forty, one fifty beats per minute. So if they're doing it in a car on a Sunday their aerobic capacity should be able to deal with it when it comes to a 10k then you've just got to look at it from a a muscular perspective but with the amount of free time they have in and around in these nice sunny countries where they can actually go out for a good run not like in the uk where it's (laughs) two degrees raining snowing yeah (laughs) it's not perfect conditions but no i mean you expect drivers to be obviously we're not expecting to be olympic athlete level when it comes to running but we're expecting them to have a solid base of aerobic capacity to be able to deal with the demands they meet in the sport yeah so essentially what you're saying is nico those are rookie numbers up there. And that's essentially <laughs> what i'm hearing it's like it's a hit it after yeah he's got to go hard we need the 20s easily yeah. um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> um obviously we're, we're we're touching on like f1 drivers uh a question that i have a bit, a bit more of a light-hearted one other than yuki for obvious reasons because he hates working out is there a particular driver at the moment on the grid or maybe one that recently left like seb uh who you would really like to work with in particular because it, it is it is a little bit like silly season at the moment for trainers and stuff like that at the moment and performance yeah. coaches obviously with a few people moving so yeah i any ideas i might cover it from two different angles so i might look at it as someone i'd love to work with in terms of it just be a great laugh but and i think from that perspective you've i mean you've always got the people like danny rick who you know would just be a great laugh to hang out with you know you'd always have fun um even someone like lando um and even i've met um i've met oscar once before and like again i think it's just that that typical aussie personality you know just so laid back easy to hang out with so that's from that side of things i think i'd love to work with one of those personalities but then at the same time you've got that other one of that ability to make an impact on someone and i mean 
my job is to make the most out of someone's physical performance. So yeah, it'd be cool to take someone who maybe I don't know if I can throw any names out here because I can't really <laughs> I can't really speak on behalf of them because I don't know what specific shape they're in. But yeah, it also work with a driver who potentially isn't at the demands of the sport just yet and carry them through and make a change. Um, so I guess maybe one of the more rookie-like drivers because they're newer to F1 level. Sure. Um, or even someone like Fernando because he's getting on a bit now. So you'd have to have to nurture him a little bit more. That'd be really cool, having some different challenges from that side. I mean, he was only a rookie a couple of years ago. So yeah. Well, that is true. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, I, I saw him training in the gym in uh, Bahrain in 2022. Yeah. And he can still chuff along on a treadmill he's still got some gas in him so guy's a legend like i don't get how he's doing it it's ridiculous <laughs> um i mean we need his performance coach to work <laughs> what on earth he's doing to him because yeah. it is ridiculous <laughs> um well it's, it's funny you mentioned fernando because I, I remember an interview he did he goes 2012 was he goes the one time he felt 100 percent fit and you saw in his performance and i guess you know, with footballers, like they might have niggling injuries, but they run through it. Is there any kind of common injury that does happen with drivers around like the neck or the calves and stuff like that? And are they ever 100% fit considering what they do for a whole year? That's like, there is going to be a few niggles, but they can just work their way through it. Yeah, I mean, you'll have your obvious sort of load or like continuous load-based injuries, we'll call them in for now because they're not going to limit performance so you'll get obviously aches through neck um a common one i've seen in single seaters but also sort of in like closed cockpit racing is lower back pain just from that horrible because that the seats, sounds about right yeah the seats are really comfortable because they're morphed around the driver but that's only really for about five minutes <laughs> and then that, from there on in like glutes aren't working so backache just kicks in so you tend to see sort of anything sort of up the back takes a lot of the load um, I mean, but without but, oh, sorry, we, sorry, I was just going to say we did obviously see, especially with porpoising in F one, we saw a lot mm. of drivers dealing with back. But like Lewis, quite famously, couldn't even get out of the car because of porpoising yeah. in Baku. I want to say so that doesn't surprise me whatsoever because also it's like so close to the ground. So if you hit something, it's obviously going to go straight up through your spine as well. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but no, I was no, no, agreeing I mean, with I, you. I think the porpoising was a really good way of sort of exacerbating how bad these seats are for drivers i mean obviously they're for their actual purpose if we take any sort of objectivity away from it mm. like these seats are made to be lightweight get the driver in their perfect position for what they need to do but they're not designed for comfort so we're going to expect them to have some little issues as we go on um, and i think yeah the porpoising kind of just highlighted that to a greater extent but you're not going to change it because in a sport like Formula One, marginal gains are everything. And if you want to have a bit of extra padding in your seat, you can add a bit more weight to the car. And it's just, at the end of the day, you, you're going to take that sacrifice. But realistically, without without putting a, uh, a sort of a, a tainted flag over F1 drivers' physical performance, they are probably, they are probably not the most hard or the hardest car to drive. Just in terms of you've got your power steering, yeah. you've got a lot more load through neck because obviously the higher G-forces. But I would say that an F2 car or an Indy car is much more physically demanding to drive. And I think from there, that's when you see a lot more with sort of hands, uh, wrists, forearms. You'll still obviously get a little bit through neck. I mean, I remember after the um, 
the race in Jeddah in 2022, most of the drivers came off and were trying to put on the front about how easy it was. But realistically, you'd walk down the paddock and once they got back into sort of their team's areas, drivers were laying on the floors. They could barely like stand up because it's just a physically demanding track. But then F1 guys, yeah, obviously they've got a longer race, but they just don't have that. I think I remember speaking to Marcus about it. He reckons that an F1 car was five times lighter to steer than an F2 car. So it kind of wow. puts that perspective onto it of how demanding that side of junior motorsport is as well. Yeah, thank God for power steering, right? Like it's, it's, <laughs> Absolutely. It's a joke, yeah. But I think, Ash, you had a question around like physicality after races, didn't you? I mean, yeah. Um, again, just another interview with like, Carlos. He goes, they train for the Singapore race. And if you can do Singapore, all the races, like that, that's fine. It's measurable. So do you train for a specific race with your guys? And just interesting also to get your thoughts on Qatar and Formula One and, and what you thought about that and if it was too extreme. You know, Lewis came out and said it's an extreme sport, but then there's like the opposite side saying, but this is too extreme, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when I was with Marcus, our race like Singapore, because obviously F2 don't go out to the Asian races, our big one was Zanvoort. Yeah. Because Zanvoort's, again, another one that's renowned for being quite a, a high grip track. A lot of steering strength is required and from what happened the year before i think it was f3 were out there was another series out there and they all kind of were starting to they're like it was very publicly known it was quite a uh, struggle and with the f2 cars being ridiculously heavy and again no power steering we was expecting it to be this was like our massive race of the year was like we need to be ready for this otherwise the year's been a waste um so that was a big one for us and then this year i've been doing some bits in gb3 it was very similar because we went to Zanvoort. Um, but obviously the cars aren't as, uh, as let's call them, souped up as the F2 cars. Sure. So there's less, there's less downforce. Obviously, the steering strength and the G-force will be lower, but it was still obviously a consideration. Um, but these sort of races are the kind of races I think that you need to test drivers. Um, I think you've got tracks like red bull ring which i think are very fine margin tracks because they're shorter they're very simple but they separate the really great drivers who can finesse a car around the basics better than anyone but then you've also got these other tracks which you know you need your grit your determination but then that physical side to be able to pull through and still be able to pull on or pull off back-to-back -back quality laps at an end of a race when you've lost two kg of water weight you know you're severely dehydrated your muscles don't want to work anymore so as a driver you need to have that complete package so these sort of races i think are great for determining who can handle that sort of pressure and going back to what you said obviously about qatar you need these sort of races to add the variation because i'm not saying that other tracks aren't a challenge because obviously race the whole point of Formula One is a massive challenge. You're racing yeah. the best people in the world around these crazy tracks, high-speed cars and everything. But there's been races where you would see drivers come out and they've just had a breeze. And you can tell. like They'll say, <laughs> oh, there's a bit of a challenge, I was fighting or whatever. But realistically, it's easy. And I think sometimes you need these chaotic races to kind of, as a fan, to see how difficult it can be. But also for a driver to actually understand what they're doing in my personal opinion and then as a performance coach we get the joys of putting them through hell to prepare for it 
Um, and maybe kind of just following on from that, for hand over to Jacob, is kind of the opposite of activity and sleep. Um, how do you deal with jet lag? How does that affect uh, drivers? How does that affect yourself? And how important is getting good quality sleep? And how do you manage that? You know, are you making sure that they're not scrolling through Instagram or on their phone just before they sleep and things like that, getting like daylight in? Um, how important is like sleep to them? I mean, sleep's massive in terms of any high-performance sport. There's um, obviously not in terms of just obviously making you feel good, but from a training perspective, 95% of the hormone that we use to recover and rebuild tissue is released during sleep. So the only the other 5% oh. of that time is released during the day, but 95% of that activity occurs during REM sleep. So if you're not getting enough sleep, your body's just not recovering. Like just biologically, it's a fact. So quality and quantity of sleep is massive from a performance side. Um, with my drivers, it's always well and good saying, oh, okay, I want you in bed at sort of 10 p.m. Then you're going to be up at 7 a.m. You know, we're going to get a nice nine hours sleep because at the end of the day, some of the guys I work with are still sort of 17, 18. There's absolutely no chance they're going to bed at 10 o'clock <laughs> at night. So, <laughs> and with like games, consoles, all this sort of stuff, like yeah. there's absolutely no chance. So you try and manage it as the best you can. So if there's any real red flags in terms of you see a driver sort of just degging with life, then you'll start to kind of pull it back and go, okay, right, we need to have a serious look at your sleep routine and put in sort of strategies on how we can improve your quality and quantity of sleep um and then see how that affects but even from a like you said from a jet lag point of view that's a massive one because it just throws your whole cycle through the window so when we went out to melbourne earlier this year we had a um a jet lag plan created by um a jet lag specialist um which was actually tom clark because he's currently doing his phd in jet lag in motorsport so he created up this plan for us which started five days before we flew out and it was just simply just trying to work on tapering our sleep schedule using uh, sort of strategies on how we can adjust our body clocks to go forward. So when we should be asleep, but it's daylight, we're wearing sunglasses when we're awake, but we should oh sorry, when we should be asleep, but we need to be awake. We're putting bright lights on everywhere just to try and train right. our body into shifting our circadian rhythm around. And even then, from a training perspective, it's looking at managing what time of the day we should be training to help influence how our sleep will adjust with that as well so sort of in the uh situation of um i think how much way we did now but obviously if you're looking to try and push sleep back yeah uh, you need to be staying up later you'll push your training sessions towards later in the day whereas if you try to do it the other way around you're trying to wake up early you'll get them sessions in early to wake the body up and it's just li lots of little things like that to try and influence how we can make the transition from the UK into Melbourne, which is obviously, I think it's like 10, 11 hours, is a massive difference. So it's just trying to make sure we can transition that as smoothly as possible. Wow. I think maybe us fans need to maybe take some of that <laughs> advice on when we have to get up at seven in the morning for Vegas and stuff like that. Like so five days beforehand, it's just start yeah. <laughs> yeah, five days beforehand, yeah. It was it was horrible in, um, in Melbourne. So I remember the first few days, my body clock was all over the place, even with the, like, I mean, it's better than it would have been, but I was waking up at 5am for the first two days and was, luckily the schedule was friendly, but I was getting back to the hotel and I was asleep by 7.30. And wow. I, like, I, I was trying so hard to keep my body shifting, but I yeah. physically couldn't stay awake. 
Like I've never felt anything like it. It was crazy. So, yeah. and then when I came back to the UK, it was in reverse. So I was just <sighs> another four days of just terrible sleep pattern, even with the strategy. So imagine how it'd be for the drivers if they didn't have these things in place. Yeah, that must be do you, absolutely do you, ridiculous. Do you train with the drivers or do you have your own workout routine that, that you try and follow to keep in shape? I try and throw in quick sets with the drivers just to make sure I'm still stronger than them. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's good. A massive, massive one for me and Marcus last year. Of, <laughs> at the start of the season, I was quite considerably ahead of him and he was slowly catching up and it got to sort of maybe June, July time. I was like, oh, he's actually coming for me. So then in the <laughs> sessions, I was there throwing up bench press, trying to catch up making sure I just stayed that little margin ahead of him. But I just do, I mean, people always say to me, because I'm, I'm not what I think many people perceive a performance coach to be physically, because you have that impression of personal trainers being these massively jacked people. You know, they're in the gym every day, which is great for them. But realistically, as performance coaches, what our power is, is our knowledge. Yeah. Like we've gone to university and studied how the human body works to help implement performance yep. changes onto other drivers. Um, so it's often, I mean, it's a funny one. I remember the, um, the high tech team boss actually came up to me once. I think we was waiting for a flight out for somewhere like, it must be somewhere like Austria. And he went, Ash, you're actually quite small to be a performance coach, aren't you? <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> ouch. Ouch. Oh, yeah. Hello to you too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I friendly um I gave a friendly reminder back to him that I was stronger than his driver, even if I looked smaller. So I was like, don't worry, nice. we've 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 got things in place here, it's fine. But it is, it's one of those things you you I mean, I would say I'm in shape, but I'm not one of these people that if you saw walking down the street, you wouldn't point him out and go, Oh, he's definitely a personal trainer or a performance coach because my body just can't adapt to that sort of mesomorph or that physical that body physical sort of body type so yeah I yeah think I'd, I'd just stay in shape to make sure that i can still outperform my drivers <laughs> in certain <terms. laughs> no that's that's a really good answer actually and um for for listeners who aren't aware and also me doing a teeny tiny bit of guesswork i presume you mean when you're talking about marcus you're talking about marcus armstrong just yes to, yeah just to make that 100% clear for anyone listening. Um, but yeah, and I guess that also uh, another huge part of it as well, although I'm I'm imagining that some drivers would probably have specific things set by even like chefs and stuff like that, but how often are you involved in like even simple stuff like diets and nutrition and all of that fun stuff? Um, it's a tough one because obviously I would say that my role is a full-time role. But obviously, we're not with the drivers 24-7. We're yeah. not there cooking their meals, eat, like micromanaging everything they eat because that's just, A, unhealthy for me and them, but also just practically it's not right. So yeah. it comes down to sort of driver-specific situations. So you'll look at uh, if you've got a driver that you could argue is potentially not underweight, but has room to put on mass to help performance then you'll be looking at managing calorie intake and making sure they're fueling enough just generally through training and um things like that but then also you need to make sure that over the course of a race weekend when they're burning a stupid amount of calories that they're still getting that fueling in um but you've also got it on the other side where you might have a driver who's potentially towards the higher end of sort of race weight and you want to obviously make sure they're not going so far over because once you hit sort of that minimum driver weight that's set by the FAA or whatever um, organization it is, anything over that is just extra ballast that you're carrying for no reason. So then you're looking at it from the other point of view where you need to make sure the driver's fueling, but they're not 
filling up and putting on unnecessary weight when we could be trying to cut back. Um, so from my role, where I'm not at peak F1 levels today, it's more of sort of a general just recommendations like this is where we're at, this is what you should be doing, um, making maybe some minor suggestions. We do some testing with the drivers so we can uh, calculate their resting metabolic rate. So that's their calories they burn at total rest. Yeah. And we can use that as a marker based on then how many we think they're going to be burning but, uh, during a day, whether it's training or in the car. And we can kind of work out what they'll be burning calorie-wise and then how many they should be eating, how we can plan that through the day, whether it's breakfast, meals. But then even deeper, we can kind of look at it from a carb intake, a fat intake, a protein intake, just to try and give them sort of their best, what's the word, I guess, options to help them improve performance from nutrition sure. side. But it'll never, I mean, unless you're working with a guy who's got the money to pay for a private chef and you can say to the private chef, right, this is what we're in the meeting. Realistically, you're going to have times where drivers are just going to go out and eat what they want to eat. And you've just got to be like, okay, so oh, what's your great. weight at the moment? Yeah. <laughs> and if the weight's not going up, okay, that's fine. Is your weight coming down? No, that's fine. Okay, we're in that window. We, we'll just keep it as it is for now. Yeah. I, you. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. <laughs> now, you talked a lot about like data there and calorie intake and how much they're burning in these sports data is everything right you know throttle braking is that something that's maybe overlooked with drivers in terms of performance do you wish there's more data and do you wish the sports maybe might do more in like you know there's like biometric gloves they can get trackers maybe if it's if it's safe enough i mean you've seen it in football a lot of decisions are made on data and they can like predict injuries to an extent um what are, what are your thoughts on that I, I I suppose there's two angles to look at it again. You've got to respect the safety precautions because obviously fire hazards, all these sort of things. But wearing a heart rate monitor underneath the fireproofs, I think would be valuable in terms of safety still as well, actually, because you can get live data of drivers' heart rates, sort of oxygen. You could probably get blood oxygen levels, all these yeah. sort of things. So. I think it would be amazing if we could have access to this sort of stuff. Not only as like a, an, even for myself here, a nerdy fan who just loves looking at numbers and kind of that whole aspect of things, but also then from a work perspective for me, if I can get a deeper understanding of what a driver actually goes through in the car, it'll be so much easier to better prepare them when we're in the gym or out and about because you see it now with some companies, they're, they're starting to kind of get that um, mentality pushing through more in a private sense. So you've got companies like Motorsport Biomechanics that are using ECGs to monitor muscle activity during, uh, they've done it on bikes and in single seaters. Wow. Um, so it'd be cool if we could start getting to this point where we can actually collect meaningful data to really build sort of that picture of research around what what is a a racing driver's physical profile because like you said we can see it in football rugby basketball tennis whatever because it's yeah. so easy to access but with all these rules and regulations within motorsport it's hard to gather meaningful data so the best we can do is oh how hard was that <laughs> and that's and you can say oh one to ten but realistically you're not getting a true representation of how what the body's going through when they're in the car because we just can't do it legally yep. through the rules yeah i guess no apple watches shame. just yet <laughs> no no apple watches 
What, but, I mean, I guess maybe in The Sim, maybe? <laughs> I guess that's probably the only place where I guess there's not really a jurisdiction, right? No, yes. I mean, Sim, you'd be able to throw things on, but uh, at the same time, it's still not... It's not the same, ...real is it? world. Yeah, it's just yeah. not the same. Um, so it's, it's tough. But, I mean, we can obviously use tech to monitor the body outside of the track so obviously we can use tech now to monitor sleep like we spoke about previously um and sort of like heart rate variability and things like that so we can build sort of a rest and recovery sort of uh database of what the driver's going through but nothing in the moment of being in the car yeah i think that's actually a really good answer um more of a fun question. What exercises can us mere mortals incorporate that, you know, you get the drivers to do to import, improve performance, whether it be mentally or physically? Like, I know I don't train neck at the gym. <laughs> but, like, is that a good exercise too? But what, what would you recommend to us and people listening or watching? It's like, hey, if you just incorporate this, you're going to see some real benefits from it. God, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll briefly touch on next stuff because next stuff like it's crazy when you think about it and actually to be fair even for general population because we spend so I'll try and sound because we spend so much time like this nowadays on our phones yeah. it's going on yeah we naturally have tight muscles in the neck at the front here so we'll see people just naturally shifting into this position so trying to build sort of a mentality of I mean, obviously, I'm not going to get suggest to people to go into sort of F1 level neck training <laughs> exercises, but <laughs> there is definitely a place for neck training in general training, just for general posture, health, and well-being. Because um, as soon as shoulders throw forward and neck comes forward, you're going to suffer with back pain. So, by strengthening, opening up shoulders and neck going back, by doing something sort of like a light neck bridge. Um, even just like if you have resistance bands, you can attach it to something and just do some forward and backwards with neck. Massive posture, but obviously you don't need to go to the extreme levels. <laughs> Probably six, not. Six, no. six, yeah. like, I mean, when you've got uh, just a little bit of a nerdy number for people, like if you imagine a, a 6G corner in F1, which is obviously sort of the heights that you'd imagine to see, um, you're probably looking at the average head weighing sort of between... I would say six to eight kg with the helmet on. So you're looking at probably nearly 40 kg, 45 kg of load going laterally through neck, which, I mean, it's hard to put into perspective, but imagine a small child sitting on your head. While <laughs> trying to lift it up, yeah. Yeah, like, and imagine them doing that every lap for 90 minutes. So I think that kind of throws into perspective how much load goes for a driver's neck, so... But yeah, I think I think neck training is one that if you do it correctly and safely and obviously with the right amount of load, it can be really good for just general health and uh, posture in, in everyday humans. Nice. Get those neck reps in. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's that's obviously one of the things that like, you know, uneducated people obviously say is like, oh, I can I can drive a Formula One car. I'll be absolutely fine. And they would probably last about three corners. Like yeah. I think there was a, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's got he's really posh and British. But he said that he slammed on the brakes. He was driving like an old F one car or whatever it was. I think it was F one, and it, and he came back into the pits, and the engineer said, "Wow, you did brilliantly slamming on the brakes. You hit forty percent brake pressure." And he mm. said that he gave it everything he could, but his head felt like it was going to rip off. <laughs> 
Um, and so I guess for, for somebody like myself, like I would probably maybe last two or three corners. But I guess you're almost not like, like you said, you're trying to stay stronger than the people that you train and stuff like that. So is there a number, if you had to put a number on how many laps you'd last in F1, F2 car, what would that number be? Because obviously you're closer than than, <laughs> than than I am. So somebody who has somewhat... <laughs> Does, does Marcus ever say, you know what, you can drive yeah. the car after you, uh, after you push uh, yeah. him in a, few, uh, races, in a few sessions. If we give you the hell, I don't know what it's like. Honestly, so I reckon physically, I reckon I'd have a good showing. I reckon I could go for a few laps physically. Neck would definitely be the first thing to drop off, but technically yeah. I'd be out on one corner. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Cold like, tires just straight. I'd just lock up, go straight into a barrier and that'd be my day done. So, um, But no, it's. It, I think it's one of these ones, it's kind of, you don't realise how technically good these guys are at driving. Yeah. We, um, we went go-karting in uh, in Bahrain. Um, oh, it was like God. the Virtuosi guys set it up, but you had Dewan was there, Caldwell who was in F2, and then Joe stepped down for the week for the day, which I thought he'd fancy it and come back and see his old mix. And then Piastri was there because obviously he was just chilling as a reserve at the time. And then obviously Marcus. And I'm watching these guys go, and it's, we were racing around the Bahrain International Circuit. So it's a pretty intense uh kart circuit and i credit myself as a half decent carter like i'm not gonna say i'm gonna be the next best thing but like i'll go to general days and i'm normally out the top with my mates yeah but these guys are like five seconds a lap quicker over a 60 second lap and they and they come up and they're like oh yeah you know i was i was being funny i was bumping into you so they're not even trying and they're still this like (laughs) like, these guys just have a, a knack for just this technical like this technicality of how to drive anything with wheels and it's, I remember just thinking at that moment, I was like, it's actually crazy how insignificant what I thought my team sport talent was. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, these guys are just a different level. Yeah, I mean, like, I I, I can sympathise a little bit. Like, I'm not too bad in terms of, like, even on, on, like, a sim or anything like that. But my problem is, is that in a go-kart, I weigh 98 kg on a healthy weight. <laughs> So like I'm just twice as heavy as most of the people that are there. It's there's just nothing you can do about it at all, unless you've obviously Bowser. got similar weights. <laughs> but yeah, really. Well, I'm six foot five. You've got to give me a little bit of a break. Uh, <laughs> not aerodynamic at all. But, oh God, no, no, not whatsoever. Uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, no, it's not. It's not good at all. Um, but so going back to to I guess a little more on topic. Um, we don't really have that many questions left. Uh, but so th- what the only other one that we have written down um, is obviously <laughs> for for like hydration and stuff during races and stuff like that. There was Damon Hill back in the day who used to have black tea because by the time he got to like lap 15, it was warm and it was, you know, drinkable. Um, but so is there something in particular that you that you work with like on drivers in terms of like right stop having ribena or whatever it is is there something (laughs) specific that like they have because i think we've had i think alex albon's performance coach talked about it's like no it was kevin magnuson's because i was speaking to him directly uh nikolai i don't know if you know who that is um but so i was speaking to him directly and it's like this weird like glucosey mix almost like those weird little strip things that you have for like marathons and stuff um but does that sound about right is it or is it driver preference or is it always red bull or (laughs) i mean i don't want to slam on red bull or energy energy drinks in general but i try and avoid that route because 
while it works short term, the drop off is significant. And obviously, yeah. I know you can say, oh, well, I use zero sugar, but obviously, caffeine still has the same effect. So I try and make sure that we try and get energy through fueling. So we can use like the carbohydrate gels, like you said, with the marathon runners use, um, or even just snack bars tend to work pretty well, like little flapjacks or protein bars. Um, but from a hydration perspective, depending on the situation, we'll look at using electrolytes. Um, so we can preload on electrolytes before a session, depending on how hot it's going to be. Um, but if it's not going to be a significantly difficult session, we probably won't preload just because it's not worth it. Yeah. Water is substantial. And you've also got to remember that if a guy's just had lunch an hour and a half ago, they're getting electrolytes from food. True. Everyone seems to think that electrolytes are just in like these little tablets that you get from all these like fancy websites and that. But you get all your vitamins and salts and sodiums from food as well. So a lot of the time you don't eat there, but then obviously post-session it helps with recovery because you don't want dehydration to delay sort of that recovery response. So there'll be situations where we're in really hot races where you'll want to have sort of a preload post and monitor throughout the day, but you gauge it based on how much the driver sweats. And that's kind of our marker. But typically we just go, as long as you're getting your waters in, Obviously, you're looking at least two liters of water. Yeah. But if they're sweating you up it with electrolytes or on its own, and then you can use sort of protein drinks or carbohydrate drinks to help get that fueling in without it having to eat. If you're worried about uh, a driver feeling full or being overweight. Nice. Yeah, no, it's, it's obviously just something where like I I was quite interested because obviously it's changed completely from black tea, for example. Um, yeah. obviously like 10 15 years ago like i think if somebody said oh i'm just gonna like you know again i'm pulling something that people would recognize put lucasade in there type thing yeah that's completely different to probably what it is well not completely different but different to what it is like you know right now yeah which, i think, I think you... as well, oh, sorry, go sorry. Yeah. no go ahead no, okay. i was just saying i think as well see because in f1 they have the drinks bags in the cars but yeah. f2 f3 and that they don't so you from my role outside of obviously not being an f1 we've got to do that whole hydration away from when they're in the car yeah. so the one benefit f1 drivers have is they can actually sip on water throughout the wet race to help with that hydration so that's a big one i remember marcus saying as well after his first race in indycar that he didn't actually sip any of his any of his drink <laughs> he just forgot it was so there single seaters where he'd never had a drinks tube that he'd forgot he had one in indycar so he spent his whole first race and i'm I mean, I can't remember how it was a warm race and he just didn't drink anything because he was just so unused to having a drink tube in his car. So these princesses in F1 with their power steering and their drinks. Oh, no. Unbelievable. Would you uh, would you judge anyone who had a Red Bull advent calendar? <laughs> Leave me alone. Okay. I'm not going to lie. I didn't realize they actually made Red Bull advent calendars. Uh, Neither did I. I. I'm not going to lie. I've, I've never been a fan of energy drinks. Like even when I was in my student days, I couldn't stand the smell of a Red Bull and Coke or anything like that. So, or not, it's not Red Bull, Red Bull, a vodka Red Bull and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> it's just not been my vibe. But I wouldn't, I would never judge anyone. Oh my god, I, just, <laughs> I, I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a favorite race or country that you like to go to? Like you mentioned IndyCar, you mentioned Bahrain, Australia. Is there one where like whether it's the atmosphere, whether it's just the general vibe, whether it just mm. brings up good racing? That yes. We're going here. I mean, Red Bull Ring's good for an atmosphere because the Orange Army are, are like unreal. I don't think TV does it justice. Like it's insane when you're there. Yeah. 
Um, we, Ash and I were there two years ago, and we oh, really? were essentially gassed with orange <laughs> flare smoke. Yeah. It was insane. Fun, it's... but also, like, we couldn't see anything 10 metres ahead of us as soon as Max no. finished. Like, it was ridiculous. <laughs> but, yeah, I think Osher's a cool one for that side of things. But I think my favourite track... Ooh... Monza was cool because it's one of those ones that coming as a kid who used to play on my PlayStation on like Gran Turismo on the F1 game, I'd always go to Monza because it was just such a fun one to drive. But then like the history and pedigree of Spa was pretty spectacular and doing like the track walking, obviously walking up sort of Radion and that and just seeing obviously where Antoine lost his life and things like that. It was that sort of immense sort of weight of what this place was was really obviously sad but also really crazy and exciting in a way i guess because you're like as a kid you've watched these races for years and you're like this place is so famous and i'm just casually just walking up this hill now but you don't like the whole aspect of it was just really really cool so i mean that was quite a good one as well that's awesome like genuinely really awesome um but i guess obviously you can have favorites and stuff like that i'm not going to ask you about least favorites but i am going to ask you like how how ridiculous is obviously the like the travel schedule is it something where like it like for example is there two obviously you're i guess at the moment dealing with f2 where there aren't anywhere near as many races as as um as there is an f1 but obviously like you're away from family all the time how how does that impact you is it something where you know it's something you live with or is it really draining and horrible because i know for some people it must be completely life-changing especially if you've got young family yeah i mean it was weird at first Mm. because like i remember my first experience was we went for out for a week for bahrain test we flew back for half a week and then we flew back out for bahrain race (laughs) and then saudi race so that was kind of a full-on one um and even this year we did a um we did formula regional in the middle east and that was essentially a whole two weeks away, a week back, whole two weeks away, week back, week away. So that's kind of for long. But you eventually get accustomed to it, I think. Um, it's nice being put up in king-size beds in hotels when you've got to share a bed with your girlfriend because you can just spread out, I guess. <laughs> which is, or, I think that's one of the perks of it. But it does, you obviously get to the point, I can imagine, for, especially in F1, that some of the guys just, it's so, so full on and there's so much traveling. I think it would be too much. Yeah. Um I mean everyone has their personal opinion on let's call it the uh the net carbon zero travel schedule that they have at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But even when they are over in like Singapore, Japan and that for sort of three, four weeks, they're not coming back to the UK sometimes. Some some might because they've got the money, but realistically it is a very full on sort of work or not but like it's it's full on work. It's a it's a full time job yeah. with full time job outside yeah i guess also one one question following on from that as well obviously the last two race weekends not races but the last two race weekends for f2 were really weirdly far apart like which i guess is okay but also not really especially obviously for like a championship battle and stuff like that like that must have been a really weird period as well in terms of not only for traveling but also obviously keeping you know whoever you're whoever you're working with like motivated and engaged right i mean it to not put a damper on marcus's season last year our season was kind of over after monza so we were going to abu dhabi with 
no real pressure in F2. Obviously, yeah. he had a bit of pressure of trying to prove himself for IndyCar, but we just had a month and a half of just getting absolutely shredded in the gym, nice. living our best lives. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we just basically had a week's holiday in Abu Dhabi at the end of the year. So it was quite, it was quite sweet to be honest, but uh-huh. no, it is, it is tough. I mean, I can't, I can only imagine in terms of this year with Fred and Teo having that month and a half of sort of that mental, it must be mentally draining of thinking I need to win. I need to win, but you've got to wait so long until the climax or closure of the year. So that must have been tough from this year, but I kind of—I mean, I've never had to experience that side of it, so I can't—I can't understand where they're coming from. I would say, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, that was like, especially obviously, different mindset for for Vesti and Porsche, like because they're obviously going at either one of them could have won it, but obviously yeah. that that must have been a completely different ballpark compared to Marcus. Um, yeah, yeah, just insane. But um, I think that's that's about it in terms of questions for me. Anish, do you have anything else? No, no. Um, just really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> yeah, this has been <laughs> yeah, great. Genuinely. Honestly, thank you I'm so glad much. You enjoyed for... it. It's it's good. It's good just throwing out like these free ball bits because it's just. I mean, it was something even myself like four years ago. I needed someone to tell me, but just didn't have. There was nothing where I could find out this sort of stuff so accessible. So it's quite mm. nice for me to just kind of throw all this info out for people to kind of understand what's going on in in racing yeah it's absolutely great because i think like even if you manage to convince one person that you know it's not all about just dropping tennis balls near a driver <laughs> and then going yeah good luck uh it's a, it's a hell of a lot i, more I mean work. it is at times <laughs> <laughs> all right well, you've ruined my point um but yeah no thank you so much for for joining us genuinely both of us really really appreciate it not to speak for anyone but you know but thank you very much for joining us um and uh we'll of course be popping up some some bits and pieces and like reels and all that fun stuff um which we'll be sure to tag you in um but if you have managed to make it through the oh god how long have we been recording now 48 49 ish minutes i haven't got my glasses on uh then please do go ahead and check out ash on instagram is there anywhere else you'd like for people to go and check you out i know you've got a youtube channel uh yeah the youtube channel is just me posting loads of exercise videos so if you if you are lost for exercises you can go check it out but i haven't muted it so the sound on it might be a bit grunty so if that's your thing (laughs) you can go check that out perfect well if you want to if you want to go and check out on youtube or on instagram his links will be in the description um or it's just at ash buckman uh for those of you who can just you know type it straight away but yeah like i said thank you very much for for joining us um and uh yeah we might have to have you back at some point no we definitely got to have you back um, because i'm sure i'm sure we're gonna have loads more questions of of various different bits and pieces so yeah thank you very much and uh, if you made it this far be sure to like subscribe follow the podcast on your preferred podcast platform and uh yeah we'll be back again very soon but probably not with such as an exciting guest it would just be (laughs) the two of us again it'd be really boring but yeah thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah we will see you soon cheers everyone